like I feel like there's almost an integrity issue with that. Like you're not you're not really preparing someone for the field if you're saying it's all sunshine and rainbows. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witt. Now, Cassie and I are doctoral students here at the University of Alabama, specifically in the Experimental Psychology program, where we're concentrating in social psychology. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, this is the podcast for you. Cassie, it's you, it's me. We're together forever until you abandon me for freaking Kentucky and start a real job. Tell me, how does it feel to betray your friends? It feels great because I'll be making so much more money. (laughs) You're going to be making adult money as a poor graduate student. Oh, there's a story I heard. I could share this with, you know, listeners. Also, hi, listeners. You're glad glad you're here, too. Still waiting for you to tweet at us. Follow us on Instagram and all that jazz. But there was a story maybe you told me or maybe another grad student told me. But, you know, it's kind of a story that passes around where you had one instructor teaching about like poverty to at a graduate student level. Uh-huh. And it was just like, you know, low SES, you know, lots of systemic issues, lots of health issues. Can you believe how, you know, how bad this is? And I think like the prompt or like some sort of reflection paper activities, like, I want you to sit down, just sit down and imagine if you were to live at the poverty line, like with that wage. And I think a graduate student basically raised their hand and be like, we get paid under the poverty wage here. Yeah. So we don't have to imagine. And it was just like this very awkward tension. It's just like, so you want us to imagine if we had more money. What's the poverty line here? That's a good question. And, you know, in times like these, Google is a good friend. So poverty line in Alabama for a single person is about the threshold ranges from anywhere 13,000-ish to 25, 26,000-ish. Nice. So we're at the poverty line. We're at the poverty line. <laughs> As grad students. Yeah. I'm very lucky to have my fellowship because that definitely keeps me afloat. But like, yeah. it's hard. It's really yeah. hard, especially for someone like, like me who doesn't have like parental support or like external family things. Mm-hmm. Like, it's always nice to hear other graduates like I'm suffering. But, you know, my mom's helping me with like rent this month or, you know, oh, gas is a bit expensive or I got into a car crash. I'm so happy to have like my dad just lend me some money or a couple hundred bucks. And I'm like, Oh yeah. I am one of those. I'm one of those privileged people where all throughout school, my parents have been like, if you need help, we are here. And just like having, like knowing that they will help me. Should I like need help with rent or bills or whatever one month? Like it has just taken so much stress off of my shoulders. Yeah, definitely. I feel like my grandmother is that type of person for me as well, but she can't afford it. So she's like a loving grandmother who's like, here, I'll give you some like money if you need it. And I'm like, no, no, grandma. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I always I mean, feel, uh, yeah, she always feels like bad. She's like, nobody really wants to. And I'm like, internally, you know, when the person really can't afford to. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not going to take money from my grandmother that way. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I felt with my parents, which is why, like, I ended up just taking out student loans. Mm-hmm. But That's a fine line. Um, but regardless, Cassie, I have some news for you. I have yeah. some news for us. I don't even want to go into roses and thorns, peaches or pits. I just want to focus on the positive. I want to focus on the rainbow. I want to focus on the gold at the end of the rainbow. Okay. Because today, as you already know, I sent you and five other people, my co-authors, an email saying that we got accepted for a publication. And I'm yes. just like, woo! 
And for people who are listening, it's like, oh, a pub, listen, a pub is exciting to me because I've done a lot of collaborative stuff. I worked at Psychological Science Accelerator. I worked with Cassian first, you know, co-authored a book chapter. So like, I can say that this is my first, first author publication. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the quality of the study is a high quality one. And it's something that I'm proud of because maybe this is too much into idealism. Cause I know like sometimes you have to bite the bullet and like, listen, you get a pub pub is the currency that we work with. Who cares if the study's a bit crap? Like I felt like we did high quality work that took high quality time. And the fact mm-hmm. that this is my first paper, this is our first paper. Like mm-hmm. that makes me so happy. And it's just like to lead and just get it done. Like, I know I'm entering my fourth year of doctoral program. I know I'm behind when it comes to like pub count, but like, and again, this might be my idealism and I can say it now, but like slow and steady, do it. It takes some time. It takes some effort, but I'm really happy with myself. I just want to share that with you again, Cass, because I'm just, I'm not sure. I'm really excited. Like the energy, just I get random bursts of it. And then it's like, it comes back since this morning of just like every 30 minutes. I'm like, oh shit, I could add that to my CV. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so exciting. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud to be your second author on this paper. Like, I think it is a really quality publication. Um, And I'm excited to, like, actually see it in press. Like, that moment is going to be so cool. Listen, Cassie, you and I, we're going to have episodes. And maybe talk about this a little bit. We're going to have an episode dedicated to you and certain research you're doing recently. And we can have, like, an episode dedicated to me. And we can just do, like, a research show and be like, hey, y'all, besides teaching, we also kind of, you know, are scientists. (laughs) Yeah, we're multifaceted. Yeah. Most people are, like, we're researchers first and kind of teachers on the side. And we're like, oh, no, we're definitely teachers Oh, yeah. kind of our top end and yeah. we do research as well High we do research yeah like so. i'm so excited to like start my new job in the fall i have like a, a students are already space. emailing you right students are emailing me already i'm just so excited i have to get through this dissertation but i have to get through my preliminaries so you're on the very last step and i'm on the very i'm on the second to last step so i'll be where you are hopefully in a year if i tend I to graduate here in four years that's exciting it is kind of, it is really cool though like i so i finish data collection tonight like tonight's the deadline for data collection yes, I like it's the end of the semester yeah i met my participant recruitment goal which is definitely a rose for me a peach if you will um so it's now insane in a single semester how many people did you collect like to me I, as of right now i've collected um or at least i have like 1100 survey entries <laughs> And this is not just like giving out servers or using like um, like the subject pool in that regard. You're going like, I don't say door to door, but you're going to instructor to instructor. Mm-hmm. You're really throwing yourself out there and you're getting real students and showing them not like a 10 minute survey, but like you're showing them full on lectures. I am. Actually, you know, what? no, no, no. I'm actually not going to spoil what your study is. <laughs> This yeah, will be a tease. Have... We're teasing. It's a pedagogical <laughs> surprise, surprise. That's the only surprise you get. It's teaching themed research. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's teaching and open science stuff. And we're going to have a whole episode dedicated to it because, yeah, I don't know. It's a project I'm really proud of. And then for my project, it's open science. It's qualitative work. So, you know, I'm so used to doing quant stuff and like being part of quant stuff and just taking those stats. So the idea that my first pub is more, it's kind of a mixed methods approach to that. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, oh, cool. I love it. So it I'll be excited really cool. to share that. Yeah, I think there needs to be more qualitative research out there. I feel like it's one of those things where... It's like, you know, we have to publish in open journals. We have to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like there's a lot of stuff in our community that we know we should be doing. 
but then nobody wants to do it because it's like I don't want to say that we're a bit hypocritical, but I feel like you know, there's one thing to say an ideal, and then there's another thing to like live up to that ideal. Yeah. And so some people might be like, we need to publish in more open journals, like uh, amps, like uh, collaborative psychology. Mm-hmm. But like at the end of the day, and maybe I was recently listening to someone else's podcast. I'm sorry, I know I'm cheating on you, Cassie, but like this is someone <laughs> else's okay. podcast, and they were basically saying something along the lines of like, yeah, it's cool that we can publish in like you know these good high quality journals but they're not famous. Nature is famous. Science Mm -hmm. is famous and they may not be open access, but they're like, I want to chase the high name, highly known thing and have that, you know, on my resume or on my CV in this case, just because there's something sexy about getting that prestigious thing, even if it doesn't follow all the open access stuff. Well, I mean, it's also just like about how other people perceive it as well, too. Like, you got to think like if you're going up for tenure or if you're like looking for a job, like, a nature publication as someone who like was on the job market with a nature publication on her CV. Like, I think it does make a difference, but, but you're right. Like I do feel like we can be a bit hypocritical at times. I think like it's that way with qualitative research too. Like people are always like quick to say qualitative research is really important. Like we need qualitative research in our field. And then so few people actually do qualitative research, which I think part of that is probably just because like, I don't think you really get as much training on how to do qualitative research, at least in graduate school. I I think most of like what we know about qualitative research is self-taught. Mm-hmm. And I think there's definitely the incentives, not to bring up incentive systems randomly, mm-hmm. but like even in our own program, I love our program. Like I love even the teaching and the TOP aspect of it. Mm-hmm. One thing I am critical of, and one was a recent push, was that we offer, or at least the educational department here offers, um, I think a series of up to like, I think it's four or six qualitative classes. Mm-hmm. And it's like methodology. And I know for other stats courses, so not all of our stats courses, but some of our um, stats courses, we outsource to the educational department. And we say like those, those count for your degree. Yeah. And you and I have a lab mate. Hey, Josh. Hey, soon to be Dr. Baker in a couple of years. If you ever <laughs> listens to this. Yeah. Um, all, that's his number one priority is qualitative. And I think he asks like, hey, can I take those qualitative classes and have those count towards my credits then? something I'm probably never going to use like SEM or MLM because he's just not interested in those advanced stats. Mm -hmm. And I think the response department gave was, oh no, those don't really count. Um, Or like they, I guess they're just not equivalent to that credit. So they're like, if you want to take it as an elective, good for you, but it's not going to your degree, which I feel like is a huge disincentive. Like, like if you have people who generally are like, no, I know we're a quanti program, but like I want qualitative experience. I feel like that's a good substitute or like that should be a substitute. It's still I was kind of disappointed. Out. I was kind of disappointed in the department for that because I was like, yeah. that's so important. And it's yeah. one of those things where it's like, we know it's important. Like you said, everyone knows it's important. Everyone's like saying, yeah, we need to do it. We need mixed methods. We need to call such rich information. And then I think I want to ask you this. So I was interviewing you and our other previous lab mate, uh, Dr. McDermott, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was like for, uh, it was a mock podcast episode, actually. Mm-hmm. I sat down with you both and we we're talking about the state of the field. And it was like for some sort of graduate coursework assignment I was doing. And I asked you, so is qualitative work important? And you both vigorously said yes. And this is what, like a year ago, year and a half ago? Yeah. And then I was like, all right, so are any of you going to be doing qualitative work? 
right? Are you going to start including qualitative work into your own practice? And both of you vigorously shook your head, no. And I was like, but you, and I was, and I was roasting both of you. I'm like, but you just both said how it needs to be done. Um, and this isn't like putting you on blast or right. anything, but I feel like that's quite literally how everyone feels. I think so. part of my hesitancy to do like qualitative work is that I haven't been trained to do qualitative work. So it's obviously like really intimidating because I don't really know exactly what I'm doing. And I know that in order to do it, there's going to be like a lot of work on the forefront, like trying to understand like how qualitative methods work and how qualitative analyses work. Um, and I guess I have a bit of experience now that we have, you know, done this project that just got accepted. Um, but still, I don't know. I find it intimidating. I think like I often, well, I often have, I have also just created like this program of research or like this line of research where generally I think about research studies in quantitative ways, you know, like my mind immediately goes to like quantitative measures for like the constructs that I'm interested in measuring. Um, so it's very much, I think, a, a mindset too, just because it's what I do more often than not. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, um, I want to share a link with you or a study on our last podcast episode and I completely forgot. So I wanted to share this study with you, which I think might have some interest. Okay. But it's titled, and I'll link it in the show notes because I'll be editing this episode, folks. <laughs> yeah. Why people listen, motivations and outcomes of podcast listening. <laughs> okay. By Tobin and Guadagno. 2022 this was published april 6 so like about 23 days ago yeah. so less than a month ago and it was a pre-registered study that looked i think around like 300 people and they basically were trying to ask the question of like what personality traits are associated with podcast listening why do people listen to podcasts has improved and certain topics came up um so like there was not associated with a lot of things but one of the things that had a negative association and i'd be interested to know your thoughts on is this need to belong right mm -hmm. so what the i think original pre-registered hypothesis is people who have this personal need to belong kind of like the social need they might be more likely or they're more likely to say that they listen to podcasts and they listen to it more often. Mm -hmm. In this study, and again, always take a single study with a grain of salt. I feel like I always have to hedge that in any study I cite. They found the opposite. So people who had a higher need to belong were less likely to listen to podcasts. And to the authors, this was surprising because they were kind of referencing this idea of parasocial relationships. Yeah, that's what, that's immediately where my mind went. All right. What do you know about parasocial relationships, Cassie? Do you have any parasocial relationships? Is um, there someone that you listen to? Scenes, movies? Act I feel like you have a parasocial relationship with Taylor Swift for some reason. I kind of do. Like, I kind of do have a parasocial relationship with Taylor Swift. Um, like, I feel like I know her. <laughs> <laughs> and that's scarce. <laughs> Like, I know, like, if I take a moment to step back, I'm like, I don't actually know Taylor Swift, but I feel like, like I do. <laughs> you know quite a bit, though, about Taylor oh, Swift. Yeah. Like I, I would I'm say dirty little secret, but you're proud of it. Yeah, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say I like Taylor Swift. Uh, yeah. She's definitely my celebrity crush. She, she's what? 
she's definitely my celebrity crush. Of course, of course. Um, other findings that they found was this uh, speaking for parasocial relationships, mm-hmm. that having a need for that actually was associated with more positive outcomes of social engagement with higher listening to podcasts. Okay. Um, and a lot of people list podcasts for that and then also information seeking. So you probably listen to a podcast for one of two things. One, you want to feel like some sort of connection with people, mm-hmm. um, even though it's weird if the post and the negative association need to belong. So how I don't know they, how that operates. How did they explain that in the paper? I don't think they really do. So what they say here is our findings extend our knowledge of podcast listening. So this idea of people who have listened to a podcast have higher informational needs, lower belonging needs, and lower neuroticism than those who do not. Um, at the same time, though, they talk about our findings support the idea that podcasts provide informational as well as social gratification to listeners. So that once they're saying it provides social gratification, but also people who have less of that need to belong listen to podcasts. Okay. So I don't know. They, they really, that's yeah, towards like the end like, of it. Like yeah. they really don't elaborate. Um, but their conclusion is that informational needs likely motivate podcast listening um, and that certain types of listening could provide social gratification. So that's how they hedged it. So not it, it's an unsatisfactory conclusion. I feel like they really didn't. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. Like ours is a kind of podcast I think you would listen to for information seeking in my own podcast listening, just like personally, most of my podcasts that I listen to aren't for information seeking. Like it's purely for entertainment. Like I listen to a lot of, well, maybe, mm, I don't know. Like I listen to, a, I love history podcasts. Like I just, and it's not like I'm like, oh, I want to know about Henry VIII and all of his wives. I just, it's like entertaining to hear like the drama of it. Uh, if you were to make some podcast recommendations, mm-hmm. like would be like two or three that you listen to? Um, I love the podcast. My favorite podcast is called Noble Blood. And so it's a history podcast all about like kings and queens and like monarchs and and things throughout history. Um, Yeah, it's really good. And then I also really love the podcast Lore, um, which is like a lot of like folk tales but there's like it's very historical in nature as well um a lot of like dark historical stories dark historical stories so yeah edgy. yeah i know it's so edgy <laughs> i was gonna say i feel like i listen to podcasts for both reasons so both informational and enjoyment yeah so like um as far as like podcasts i listen to i would say have you ever heard of quantitude it's these two quantitative psychologists. I think one's like an educational researcher and one's an actual like developmental psychologist. Um, and all they do is talk about stats, which I know sounds boring, but they're like hilarious as all hell. And it actually helps me like understand complex topics like SEM, MLM, or like even basic, like they'll go over from basics to the most advanced stuff. And it's just so hilarious how they do it because they're just ridiculous people in a good way. If they listen to this in a good way, you're ridiculous. I'll have to look into that one. Yeah, it's definitely helped me as I try to teach myself SM. And then another one, although I think this one's a lot more popular, or maybe not a lot more, but I think in academic circles it's popular. So have you ever heard of Very Bad Wizards? Yeah. 
it's so good. It's so it is good. Is it David Pizarro and Tan Tandler Summers? I think on the top of my head, mm-hmm. I should know their name if they say every introduction, but somehow I still don't. Yeah. Um, but one's like a disgust researcher that's like close to Paul Bloom, um, and the other's like a philosopher on like honor culture, and it's like. It feels like if Redditors became PhD philosophers and just were like shit hosting. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's what that podcast is. It's so entertaining. And it's I just think like, that is such a, that's such a great description of that podcast. <laughs> it's just like sometimes they're so insightful and deep, and other times it's just like you are like middle school boys. I don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. Here right now. Yeah. Okay. Cassie, do you want to dive into the topic of today's episode? Uh, yeah, let's do it. All right. So what I propose is we actually, you and I have discussed like a lot of topics that we want to have for future episodes. Um, and a lot of it revolves around open science, right? And we even talked a little bit about the open science uh, or the incentive system. For me, I was feeling like in order to broach upon those topics, it'd be helpful to kind of have like almost uh foundation like a similar understanding so like anyone who listens to us can listen to this episode first and then as we talk into about like the nuts and bolts and get into like the nitty-gritty of stuff it won't be for someone who has no idea what open science is or the history of it they're like what are they talking about right Mm -hmm. and at the very least this episode for even people who do know it can serve like as a refresher and be like oh yeah that did happen right kind of crazy kind of that was a thing psychics psychics were a thing for a little bit yeah it was not no shade to parapsychologists but like it's skepticism high skepticism severely high skepticism um but yeah uh how should we go about this i feel like as i was talking to you a little bit before that I've given this talk so many times, it almost feels like a spiel. Like I almost kind of like get a robotic and be like, it's this, it's this, it's this. Uh, and I guess that's a good thing to be like, all right, we're, we have some expertise in this. Or I'm demonstrating some expertise in this. On the other hand, it feels bad because then I was just going autopilot and I don't want to go on autopilot for this episode, at least and just like start rambling. Yeah. So I guess we're kind of qualified to talk about these things. Um, last summer, we co-authored a book chapter together that was published in Questionable Research Practices in Clinical Psychology. And the chapter that we contributed was called History of Replication Failures in Psychology. And the way that we opened up the uh, the chapter, like going through like the history of all of these issues was with a metaphor. Uh, you know, I love a good metaphor. Um, and so we started out by talking about this cat, this real cat that lived and his name was Oscar. And in 2007, there was a paper published about Oscar in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so in this like perspective piece, Um, A doctor, Dr. David Doso, was talking about this cat, Oscar, who lived at a nursing and rehabilitation center in Rhode Island, where it was like primarily elderly patients who had like end-stage illnesses, like Alzheimer's disease. Um, And according to the, the perspective piece, they said that Oscar had this ability to predict when the residents there were going to pass, like he could predict death. Um, And so stories of like the cat's ability started to circulate amongst the staff members there at the rehabilitation center because they started to notice that Oscar 
who wasn't necessarily a friendly cat began to like persistently hang out around patients who would pass soon, like after he started to hang out in their room with them. Um, and so they noticed this time and time again over a period of several months. And so the metaphor is like, we can imagine that when the first patient passed while Oscar the cat was there, you know, the staff members might've thought nothing of it. Like maybe it was a coincidence, but then it occurred a second time and a third time, you know, eventually like a 25th or 26th time. And so they became more confident Confident that what they saw wasn't a fluke, or you can think about it, it wasn't a false positive, but rather they had some logical explanation for, for why this was happening, right? That being that Oscar the cat was a psychopomp, right? He could predict when, when death was imminent. Um, but I think it's important to remember, like, as you're considering this kind of story, and especially like within the context of, you know, replications, it's probably likely that the staff members were failing to register or ignoring all of the instances where Oscar didn't accurately predict when someone was going to die, right? So surely not every single patient that Oscar the cat was hanging around was going to die in his presence or that everyone who passed away at this center like died while Oscar the cat was there. Um, and so in our scientific endeavors, right, the big metaphor is that when you ignore failed replications, there are serious consequences, right? So we risk maintaining beliefs in our work that are possibly wildly false, right? Like a cat being able to predict when someone could die. Um, and so that was really like the kind of like metaphor or like the overarching lesson of this chapter that we wrote. But then we really dived into like some of the major occurrences that happened within psychology um, that sort of contributed to where we ended up when we said we were in a replication crisis. So what is my usual spiel, you might be asking? Uh, and I think my spiel tends to revolve around a year, specifically the year of like 2011, because I feel like, to put it bluntly, shit went down in 2011. A bunch of stuff happened around that time, either a year prior or a year after, a year during. Um, I feel like it's kind of like a milestone in the history of psychology. Um, why do I say this? I feel like if we were to talk or trace the history of open science, at least as it's developed in psychology, it was like the Big Bang because of three events. And so in no particular order, how I will recall them is I think one of the most interesting things is this idea of um, famous social psychologist Daryl Bem. Um, rock star in the field, to my knowledge. I feel like I should know more of the rock stars within our field, but, you know, at least I'm starting to develop a few names, and I know Bem was one of those big names, and possibly still is one of those big names, um, especially among older uh, faculty. And so he published this paper titled Feeling the Future, um, and it was a paper that had what was published in one of our most prestigious journals in social psychology, as well as you know, it's one of those articles, those papers that wasn't like one study or two studies bound together or three studies bound together. If memory serves me right, I think it's like nine studies total. So it was this like paper that had nine studies. And what was the big key takeaway? Um, it was evidence of psi, PSI, or psychic ability. So let me say that again for if this is your first time hearing. I want you to imagine one of the biggest names in the field publishing and going under peer review in one of like the most prestigious journals in the field, published a paper saying we found evidence for psychic ability. 
that one, you might be saying, oh, cool, psychics are real. Uh, but it seemed like the most general response was, wait, what? Um, and it was like, no, right? Like there was a high amount of skepticism, like that initial like knee-jerk reaction, like, no, right? Like, is this an April Fool's thing? Is this like, what's going on here? And it was completely serious. Um, and like looking at the methods and looking at the stats went behind it, people didn't find anything out of the norm or like out of the ordinary it was status quo practices that he did nine studies on like small samples each study um and so the question arises like how could this finding possibly exist around the same time so like 2011 being the big year you also had um someone named Dietrich Stapel and he's a Dutch social psychologist who was also, he was younger, but I believe he was an up and coming star. So like he was gonna be those rising big names. Um, and he used to publish research, I believe it was on like the environment. I'm specifically tying our physical environment to racism. I think he was one of those people where if you gave him the data, um, he could basically make it sing, right? Like he's just one of those people where every hypothesis quote unquote that he predicted always came true um, a lot of the ideas that he kind of guided students to have the questions they asked it would always seem like it would be coming from the student but obviously he was kind of like in charge of it of guiding to ask certain questions and it came out that he was accused of being one of the biggest fraudsters in social psychology um, specifically if there's another podcast called two psychologists for beers and one of the hosts there um Yul Inbar, hopefully I'm pronouncing that name correctly, was actually the faculty member who worked with Stapel's graduate students, who they then recorded him. So imagine you're gonna make an accusation of fraud. They recorded him and all his behaviors and the sketchiness that was associated with it for like over a year. And I actually met one of his graduate students who was doing that in the class that I had um, in Berkeley. Um, and she was talking about this experience as well. So you can imagine you have like this new fresh faculty member who, you know, they don't have job security. Um, you have these graduate students who are like, oh God, my advisor might be just scamming us. Documenting for over a year where they've provided enough evidence where it was undeniable. And so when they came forth to the university and I bring in this podcast because I think in episode four, of two psychologists for beers. Um, Yoel actually talks about his experience kind of being the instigator is the wrong word, but like the leader spearheading, the being the faculty member, the young faculty member spearheading it, like of how risky that was to tackle on such a big name. Um, but they had like ironclad evidence that could not be denied. And I'm glad that the university responded to that. Uh, and again, this is someone who's published in all the hotshot journals, who went through peer review. No one noticed fraudulent data. No one knows how he did that. Um, and that was a huge blow. It's like, what the hell is going on? And I feel like the third, what was kind of tying these things together was a paper by, I think it was, no, no, that's 2018 paper. It was Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson. Um, and I confuse the names because they publish a lot together and their names kind of dance around. But it was a 2011 paper, that big year, um, titled False Positive Psychology. False positive psychology, which I love the name. It's very on the nose. They showed through very common methodological practices, such as having 
two dependent variables or two outcome variables measuring the same construct. So maybe there's like some dependent variable outcome switching um, by just collecting, you know, sample sizes a little bit bigger. So you can run your analysis, not find anything and collect 10 more people or collect 10 more data points, run the analysis again, still not find anything, run the analysis again after 10 more people over and over again, as well as this idea of uh, exclusions. So like arbitrary exclusions, Essentially, it was talking about research, what we would now call researchers' degrees of freedom, as well as p-hacking. So it's this idea of playing with your data enough and rerunning the analysis and tweaking like what, what, who gets counted, who doesn't, what groups to include, how many variables you have. And when that's all unchecked and you're just rolling the dice of probability over and over and over again, you're exponentially, so not even actually, exponentially raising the right rates of finding a false positive or a significant, a statistically significant result, even though there's no real effect. The issue is, is that many people engage in these practices. So a separate paper follows through is like, how common are these practices that at the time were status quo? And this idea of not reporting all your variables, sometimes excluding things that were inconvenient, not reporting all your data, which basically piacking behavior, was extraordinarily high where some were saying it's 70, 89% of these behaviors at that time, just 10 years ago, people were engaging in because it was this idea that nobody really knew how bad it was. Um, and you can imagine all these things coming together leading to the OSC project or the Open Science or Collaborative Project um, where in 2015, they published a paper. So you can imagine this organization led by Brian Nosek and this initiative where like, how bad is all this stuff really? Like, is there, is there really issues here? And what they did was they ran replications on a hundred studies, right? So they went to a couple of journals, I believe it was three separate journals, collected a hundred studies in the year of 2008. So not too long ago. Um, and basically they had a multi-lab replication and the operationalized was successful replication is in many ways. Um, and so you might hear like different replication rates when people talk about this paper, some a little bit higher, some a bit lower, but out of the hundred studies they ran, um, the most commonly cited uh, stat used is around 36 to 39%. So like a little less than 40% out of a hundred studies. So it's a good one-to-one -one ratio of over 60 out of the hundred studies failed to replicate. I want you, and again, if this is the first time you're hearing about this, I'll say it again. I want you to imagine where you're taught in basic stats, you know, an alpha rate is at 0.05. In our field, we only accept a 5% error rate. Yes, there will be some mistakes, but you know, if we do it well, it should all be well and good. To then be told that about two thirds of at least the social psychology, and there's a bit of cognitive psychology literature, fails to replicate, basically means you can't trust most of what is published. And again, those, and this doesn't even count to those that successfully replicated and found a significant effect in the same direction. This doesn't even take into account very similar magnitude of the original effect. So you might have original effects that were like really beefy, large to medium effect sizes of Cohen's D, and you might now have like a 0.1 or 0.2 when it replicates and something much tinier, and maybe something a lot less practically significant. Um, which is crazy. And that like shocked the world about like, what the hell is going on? Like this led to pre-registration. This led to these open science advocacies of being transparent, open data, 
uh, open materials, pre-reg, registered reports, and things that we would now know as like, quote unquote, better quality science, right? Was this initiative coming from? And unfortunately, although some people felt like this comes out of nowhere, there's this classic, classic paper, which I feel like, well, like Ionitis 2005, um, and the title of his paper, and again, this was five, six years before shit went down, was why most published research findings are false. And he made the argument, I think one of the sections that he claims is that most research findings are false for most research designs and for most fields. And he talked about how the incentive system and the bias and what he would call data dredging, but this fishing for significant results and this what we would call p-hacking now is extraordinarily problematic. And there was a reckoning, right? That's usually why social psychology is the face of the replication crisis. And to an extent, cognitive psychology, they tend to get the most flack. There is no reason that, uh, to think that other subfields of psychology are faring much better. Um, and that's why when we wrote our book chapter, it was like the clinical psych, where you and I found not much talk about the replication crisis in clinical psych. There was like a 2018 paper, I think, and a 2020 paper, basically. And both those articles were saying, hey, clinical um, it's been 10 years and we really haven't actually reflected in our own subfield. And we're kind of worried. Maybe we should do that because we have, we're doing the exact same practices that they were doing 10 years ago. I mean, to me, that's scary because when it comes to clinical psych, those are your therapies. That's your mental health, like social psych. I can do like a minor manipulation. Sure. But like, I'm not like impacting someone's depression, you know? I think it's important to recognize too. So that Ionitis paper that came out in 2005, we'll link it in the show notes. Um, but I do think it's like one of those sort of like seminal papers that you need to read. It's been, I just looked it up on Google scholar. This paper has been cited almost 11,000 times. Damn. I have currently um, on the site that I'm using that has over or close to 3 million views. Yeah. So it's like definitely, I think, an important paper if you're interested in learning about like the replication crisis. Um, But like the issue that you're talking about, I think it's so problematic, like the extent to which social psychology has become the scapegoat for the replication crisis. And I know we're going to like talk about um, our recent publication in another episode, but some of what we found in that paper was like so many people talking about how they view social psychology kind of like as the problem child and like their field is is not to blame or like doesn't have issues with with replication and I think generally too and this is something in my classes when I talk to my students about the replication crisis like I try to emphasize that this is not a problem that's unique even to just psychology like there are many scientific fields that that are struggling with issues of replicability right now nutrition um, feel definitely a mm-hmm. lot of biomedical research to me. Mm-hmm. That's always the scariest in my go-to oh oncology cancer research. Yeah. There, there was a paper that I read not too long ago looking at research like in oncology where they found that, and this gets back to like incentive systems, but in this paper, they were talking about how they looked at drug trials for cancer drugs. And when the research was conducted by a nonprofit versus a pharmaceutical company funding the research, like when a pharmaceutical company funded the research, it was much more likely to find statistical significance so that like the drug hit the market, uh, which I think is just 
so terrifying, you know, that like this kind of vested financial interest in the research is like linked to these results. Mm. Especially with how much money is spent on like invested in these grants. I, I was going to say, cause you and I are in parallel thoughts. The fact that it seems like most private pharmaceutical companies don't trust what comes out of academia, yeah. even though academia is soaking up a lot of money from college research. Yeah. The fact that they're like, we don't think you know how to do quality work and we can't trust the results. Mm -hmm. And I think there was even a literature review where like there was like a replication success similar to seeing like if pharmaceutical trials could replicate. And it was like disastrously low. And like, I think yeah. the pharmaceutical company reviewed this literature on the basis of making some sort of therapy that was, you know, empirically sound. But mm -hmm. before engaging and just trusting it, they wanted to see if it could replicate first. And what they found was that they gave up on the project because the vast majority of what they wanted to base it on the literature just could not replicate in their own labs. And they're like, oh, actually, we can't do this therapy. And I'm like, oh, fair yeah. enough. I'm glad. Yeah. yeah, I know usually private companies are seen as the bad guy. In yeah. a lot of cases, they are the bad guy. I'm sorry. That might be nice. But like props on them for being like, actually, we don't want to kill people because it's yeah. actual real people's lives. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it's the same with like clinical psychology. Like I think there's discussion about issues of replicability and replication in clinical psych, but definitely like not to the extent that you see in like cognitive or social and, you know, cognitive research is important. Social research is important, but like research in clinical psychology has like such major implications for people's lives. Like you said, you know, like does this form of therapy work? <laughs> or... yeah, I think it has like very obvious and immediate impact. Like yeah, ours yeah. might be like indirect or this might help for an intervention. But theirs is like in the here and now. This is like, yeah. again, someone's suicidal ideation. Kind yeah. of important that you don't F that up. Or yeah. make it work. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, it reminds me of this paper by Vol um, in 2009. Mm -hmm. I learned about it going called the uh, Voodoo Correlations Paper, although I think that they made them change the title because it was just like a bad title. But it's this idea of like impossibly... Uh, impossibly high correlations in fMRI research. So like this fetishization of like neuroscience and fMRIs and how expensive it is to run fMRIs and why there's so many small sample sizes, but people are like, it's okay if it's a small sample size, right? Because it's the technology because apparently something special about the technology. Um, the fact that it costs more must mean it's better quality. But at the end of the day, a lot of fMRI stuff is correlations. You're saying, is there a correlation between this and that? Um, and one, that's already problematic. But two, their sample size are so small and the effect sizes that are fine are like an R of like 0.9, I think was like the average. Like these impossibly high things that there's no way that this generalizes or produces. And what Vol reported was basically most people make mathematical errors when calculating and doing those tests. So like a lot of the assumptions the stats are based on for fMRI work is just wrong. And it was, at least to me, how I read it, it was like, it was like a blazing condemnation of like, we need, like, what the hell are we all, how can we all screw up the stats so bad? Because uh, who would have thought, kind of going back to your Oscar the Cat story, like what I take away from that is people are really bad when it comes to, myself included, I'm not the best at this, but probabilistic logic isn't easy. And just because you got a PhD and you published research, if you don't know what you're doing with your numbers, you gotta really sit down and figure that out, especially if you're doing quantitative work and making inferential yeah. statistics work for you. Yeah, that is, I think, one limitation of just a lot of graduate programs in psychology. Like, I think there needs to be more of an emphasis on 
you know, developing good methodologies and just understanding of statistics. Which are all future topics that we can definitely talk about. Um, yeah. To kind of still constrain and kind of still like, you know, not go beyond or outside of our scope. Um, we can talk about reasons why this launched. We can talk about what the different utopias proposed by no second sense of systems mm-hmm. and the publication process. But I think what might be most helpful for people and still within the kind of the lines of our podcast is this teaching or pedagogical aspect. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I have, I'm not going to say very different philosophies, but definitely distinct philosophies of in our own classrooms when we're talking about social psychology, when we're talking about interest psych when we're talking about all these effects right yeah in the background nudging in your head it's always like well when do i bring up open science what do i do bring about there might be replication issues how do i get my students to be skeptical Mm -hmm. but also you don't want to be the instructor that says everything in our field is terrible don't listen to a thing i say their textbook is a lot like you don't want to take this nihilistic approach to teaching and being like can't trust anything ever why are you even in this class your major is garbage like which this too and i know we're going to talk about it this is essentially like what my dissertation is looking at you know like what's the appropriate way to teach about the replication crisis like do you need to make sure that you're like being constructive and that you're talking about ways we're trying to fix things while still trying to get students to be skeptical or is like this critical approach, you know, is it detrimental to like trust in psychology or does it actually like aid learning outcomes and stuff? Yeah, we'll talk about that because then my initial question is like, if we're losing trust, is that necessarily a bad thing? Mm-hmm. But no tea, no shade for now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so all things to look forward to, but can you talk about like how do you bring up if at all even though mm-hmm. hint, hint she does um talk about open science in i guess one do you teach any classes dedicated to open science mm-hmm. and then two if not if you're teaching more general like social psych or intro psych or psych of gender whatever classes you're teaching mm-hmm. stats does like this history like do you have a lecture dedicated to it do you have a week dedicated to it when yeah. do you talk about it I feel like that might be helpful for someone who is already an established teacher or someone who's new to be like, oh, this is kind of important, especially if you're teaching about the field. Like this seems like a very important history to include. So like when, how, who? I, so I haven't taught like a class specifically dedicated to like open science and replication. Um, It's something I would love to do in the future. Um, But in the classes that I do teach or have taught before, I always talk about it. Um, In my intro class, I don't go too in depth with it. I have like one very surface level lecture that I give towards the end of the semester um, talking about, you know, issues of replicability. Um, But I don't, yeah, I don't really emphasize it too much. Um, I definitely talk about it a lot in my social psych class. So it's like something that I bring up like at the beginning of the semester and then like throughout, you know, I'll talk about findings um, that are like pretty popular, but like have maybe like been debunked or like have failed to replicate. Um, So things like ego depletion, you know, that might be like in their textbook or they may have heard about before, but they're really just like, there aren't very many successful replications um, of those types of studies. Um, And then in my stats class, it's something that I try to bring up really early on. So really in my upper division 
classes. So like my stats class and my social psychology class, um, like one of my learning goals for my students is to develop skepticism uh, because I think this was like something for me, like as a student that just totally transformed education for me and the way that I thought about science. Um, and so I'm constantly trying to get them to like, you know, like evaluate studies or like think of like limitations that could be affecting results. So in my stats class, for example, you know, like I try to talk about throughout the class, like what it means to have a really small sample and how, you know, that, that affects affects how much we should probably trust the results of a study. And so like we continuously like talk about that point. Um, and then I do have like specific lectures dedicated just to like replication. Um, and I think that the students like generally are really, really interested in these things. So like I talk about pretty popular studies, there was like the power posing stuff, like a lot of them have watched that TED talk. So like when I talk about how the, those findings fail to replicate, they find that super interesting. Um, or there was like the, the one study about how washing your hands like is related to like removing like your feelings of like shame, moral shame and guilt. Like, I feel like some of them have like the Macbeth effect, like some of them have heard of that before. So I think they're like really engaged by hearing about those things. But I know like one common debate when it comes to like teaching replication crisis stuff. And Jacob, I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but I'd like to hear your thoughts for the podcast. Like, is there ever an inappropriate time? Like, can you bring up the replication crisis too soon? to students, you know, because I think some people fear, you know, if they're in psychology 101 and they've never had a psych class before, like from the get go, right out of the gate being like, you can't trust psychology research can be like really harmful and sort of like have maybe negative consequences for their like psychology education. I feel like we are, I feel like social psychologists and psychologists in general almost have a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, they have physics envy. We want to be like the hard sciences. Everyone calls us a soft science. That that's my voice for why mm-hmm. psychology. That's what I hear. Yeah, and for me, it feels almost icky or gross. Or it feels like snakes oil salesman to be like, no, no, no. We got to lure them in first. Then we can show them all the stuff. Like in a future class, maybe. Even though I feel like a lot of other upper divs don't cover it. I feel like you're pretty unique instructor even in that regard mm-hmm. um and again no shade to our department but i feel like just naturally that's probably how it is and those instructors don't incorporate that which that's a future project but don't you worry i feel like all we're doing is not just throwing drops of like past and published and future projects yeah um but that being said i for one hold the belief that it's never too early and I know you said for like even your introductory of your lower level classes that might not be like a junior or senior level that for the lower level, you'll wait to the end and have like kind of like a replication lecture towards the end. For me, I bring it up like maybe the week after syllabus day. Um, and I dedicate multiple days to it, going over the history and going over the scientific method, which I feel like a lot of instructors already do, right? They'll spend like, what's methodology and talk about that. But I really hammer home this idea of skepticism, like you said, in scientific literacy. Like, I feel like there's almost an integrity issue with that. Like, you're not you're not really preparing someone for the field if you're saying it's all sunshine and rainbows. Like, I don't care, like, if people are like, oh, but that makes it sound much more distant. And you're making it sound like psychology is hard. Psychology is hard. 
science is hard. Science is difficult. To not acknowledge that, like, hey, we kind of left up here, but we're doing better. There's a paper by um, Nelson, Simmons, and Simmons, and I think the order gets wrong, but there was 2018, which tell like the replication uh, renaissance. And it's documenting like on all the ways we've improved over the past decade to do better, to make better science. Like, I think we have to cover like the dirty, dark history of it in order to appreciate that we have gotten better. Like, I don't think it's doom and gloom. I always try to spin it on the positive edge, but I always want them to remember that, hey, psychologists for a century thought like we really built something here and it might be built on a house of cards and anything anyone's going to try to sell you or say is based off psychology research, especially part of 2010. Like I, I, I preface this all when I lead up to when I talk, start talking about methodology, why we should care about sample characteristics beyond the math, why we care about generalizability. Because there's one thing to say, like, yeah, sample matters. But we can tell people like our samples are weird and small and always messed up always check that first when someone's trying to convince you of something students then pay attention because they know now why it's important yeah i think that part of fixing our problems too comes with like being better researchers but it also comes with being better educators because you have to remember that like the students that some of the students obviously not the majority of them but some of the students in your undergraduate classes are going to go on to be psychologists who do research and so like building a foundation where like they understand like the importance you know of like constraining your statements of generalizability or like the importance of, like you said, sample characteristics is just so, so important. And I think we owe it to our students to like build them and to our field to, you know, build them into quality scientists. I agree. And I feel like for all my classes, and of course, that's always extra, extra emphasized when I teach statistics. Um, but just generally speaking, I always talk about any study I present. So like in Psych 101, um, in IO Psych, Everything I'm gonna do, I'm like, here's the sample. Here's not the constructs they measured, or here's not only the constructs measured. Here's how they measured it, or I'll let them know if it's an older study. Oh, would you expect they never provided how they operationalized with this? Because I really want them to think like, what? Yes, where are the key findings? But two, I spend more time of like, but could you tear this finding down? Like, what are the limitations of it? And I would rather always do that, and then instead of saying like, oh, isn't it great that the Stanford Prison Experiment happened? When like, for example, that's like a cornerstone thing that people learned about and it's exciting and it's fun, it's interesting and extraordinarily problematic and done so poorly and is just completely misleading and off the mark. I it's just sexy. Had a, yeah, I just had a conversation in my stats class with my students. Like I gave um, one of the very last lectures that I gave was about the replication crisis. And someone was like, what about the Stanford prison experiment? And I was like, let me tell you. <laughs> That's that Stanford prison experience kind of course. Um, like a dear to my heart is like Milgram's experiment, um, which has been replicated to an extent, but like also mm -hmm. I know some people have noted its history, at least in the original study done. And it's almost I don't think I get defensive, but like I get hurt almost. Because uh -huh. there was just like this wonder when I was younger yes. in undergrad that when I first learned about like this is so fascinating. This is that, so cool. That was like the study that I heard about that I was like, oh, I want to be an experimental psychologist because I was like, this is wild. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Like there is just such a sense of wonder about like those really classic experiments. And sadly, they are in many ways problematic. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important because a lot of classes, um, and I think I do some more of this in my stats class. I'm not sure if you teach this in your stats, but I actually do cover meta-analysis to some extent. Um, so I know some people will be like, I do factorial NOVA, or go up to factorial NOVA, yeah. or like go into multiple linear regression with undergrads in the last week. I'm like, one, what are they going to learn from that? <laughs> but two, um, at the very least, tell them how to read like certain graphs when it comes to my analysis and what they're done for. Uh-huh. I also tell them how it's problematic because I feel like one of the huge issues is Right. Or like one of the go to's is, is if you aggregate a lot of studies together and together combined, they may get a better estimation or approximation of the truth. Right. That sounds like sound logic, mm-hmm. but an analogy I always like to provide is garbage in, garbage out. If you have a lot of studies that are biased or overestimating an effect and all you did was average them all together without making any sort of correction for like some sort of file drawer problem then all you did is aggregate a bunch of crap together and now have an estimated crappy crap. Like you just put, you got garbage out. And I think this is extremely prevalent because for Baumaster, Roy Baumaster, huge name in the field. Um, someone who has, he's done, he has his hand in a lot of things, but like one of the more well-known things is ego depletion, right? So this idea of willpower is a resource that can be depleted. Um, something that is probably one of the most studied effects in social psychology that has, I believe, I know a couple of years ago, it was the estimation was over 600 dedicated studies, um, individual studies looking at this effect. So lots of time and resources go into it. And the logic is, I think in 2010, Hager replicated the results, like a did a, re, or did a meta-analysis of the results, but did not do any corrections and found like an effect. And it's like, cool, 2010, you find an effect. Um, 2011 went down and critics after that was like, wait a minute, you didn't do any co- uh, corrections for like all the unpublished work and likely no results that are out there. And there are like several corrections you can make in a meta-analysis. And when those are applied to the original data set, you basically find out that there's, they are giving so many mixed messages up to no effects. And more recent large-scale multi-dedicated replications to non-meta-analysis trying to do that ego depletion effects, find null and zip. But I want you to then go, and I think um, Baumeister still defends his claim as like the you know ego depletion is real thing, which again, who am I to say? Maybe it's our methodology, how we test it, the theory test it. But I think the claim that he makes, and I want to be careful about his words because he's a big name is that how can over 600 studies be wrong if they all find the same thing? How can a meta-analysis, when we aggregate them together, right? He, I think he says it's one of the most replicable effects. But I think that's kind of like a misnomer, a misuse of that. Um, and I think that's kind of just through, I don't want to say a misunderstanding because he's a brilliant, he's much more brilliant than I am. But like this almost motivated reasoning of like, well, maybe you're wrong. Maybe 600 studies can be wrong and due to a 2011 paper, we can show mathematically how a false alarm rate, like how that can come to be and why it's actually a feasible thing. Do you remember that? I don't remember who wrote it. I can try to find it. We read a paper not too long ago called like the bat, the natural selection of bad science, where it was essentially this idea that certain methodologies get into the literature and they're maybe not the best methodologies, but they're known to produce statistically significant results. And so people use them over and over and over again so that they can get published. I kind of get the sense that that's what's happening with ego depletion. Exactly. I feel like tying this back to pedagogy, I would say, even though I just talked and rambled a little bit about like all the things I do, um, 
at the end of the day, what I try to teach my students is kind of like two sayings. Um, and Cassie, you paneled, um, and you actually heard one of these sayings when I said DFY. Don't fool yourselves. Don't fool yourselves. <laughs> right. You did and I then I think I asked it was like a chat. It was like a coil response of like, blah, 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 blah. Yep. Uh, and I would say, What's DFY? And they're like, Don't fool yourself. And I was like, Who is the easiest person to fool? And they're like, We are. And I'm like, Exactly. <laughs> you are the easiest person to fool yeah. because it's true. It when you see true. a study that confirms everything that you already believed. That's when you should be the most skeptical. Yes. But also when you see a study that completely contradicts your view and your automatic thing is bullshit, maybe you're fooling yourself by not giving a chance, it's essentially motivated reasoning. Um, and then trying to be optimistic. I always say that I'm trying to create skeptics, not cynics. Yeah. Um, and something that I struggle with too, but like, I don't want them to lose hope. And I feel like a lot of them, like I still have students saying, I want to get into grad school for psychology. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't think it's like 100% dissuades people. I just feel like it educates people who were planning on going to grad school, like our graduate psychology. Like, hey, I'm working with a lab member with so and so. Should I bring this up to them? Yeah, go to your faculty mentor and be like, do we do open science? Do we pre register? Are we measuring what we think we're measuring? Because I would rather them come into that mentality with grad school than naivete. I think replication too just presents like such a pedagogical opportunity as well, right? So it's well known that we need to do more replications in psychology. And I think conducting replications like really does present an opportunity, like having undergraduate students or maybe master's level students conduct replication projects. Like you're doing important work that the field needs to do and they're learning, you know, research methods and stats things and like the the importance of like good research practices, like without having to like do the really hard work of like coming up with a theoretical framework or like really complex hypotheses because those are like already in place. Like I think so, yeah, so many people are are missing out on the opportunity to use replication in their classrooms. (laughs) So to conclude today, I think I'm just going to end it the same way that we ended the book chapter (laughs) on the history of replication failures, right? So we started with the story about Oscar the cat, and then we said like, and I think the point of this podcast episode too is to just provide people with like historical context so that in the future, they like know what we are talking about, or if they choose to engage on discourse, in discourse on this topic, like they have a good kind of understanding of the major points of the replication crisis. Um, And I do want to like state that we are pretty critical at times of the field of psychology. You know, we don't exactly think it's healthy, but we also don't believe that Oscar the cat's coming to take us away. Right. So we don't believe that psychology is like on the verge of, you know, disappearing or like a pointless endeavor. Um, we simply like want to convey that there is, is room for improvement and part of improving means growing a community of researchers and, and educators from across different subfields in psychology who are really committed to progressing our science. Um, right. So ultimately a healthy, psychological science isn't devoid of replication failures. Of course, we're going to experience replication failures, but it's a field that acknowledges that replication is important, that those failures happen. And then it's a field that tries to incorporate those failed replications into our understanding of human behavior. Psychology as a science, in order to be a science, 
right? Mm-hmm. Has to have the idea of self-correction. And no science self-corrects on its own. It's nope. the scientists, the teachers, the educators that actually need to put in the work to do self-correcting. And if you're going to be an educator from the field of psychology, knowing this history, having at least some background, no matter how small, something to keep in your back pocket when you educate and talk to students about these big effects and they're splashy, is always have that grain of salt, um, that healthy dose of skepticism, and maybe try to teach your students the exact same thing to have that mentality as well. Um, But yeah, we'll see you folks later. Yeah, see you guys in the next one. Bye. Bye.